0: We invite you in this place. We have sung your praises. We have admitted our need. We have confessed Christ as our only hope. His body broken, his blood spilled. So now, Lord, as a redeemed people come, grant us wisdom to know how to live in this day. Grant us courage. Grant us grace. Grant us steadfastness. And Lord, this morning, I I pray, would you... Give us a glimpse of your greatness. Um, you do your work, Lord. That's what we ask. All for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Apple released their uh, their newest version, right? The uh, iPhone 15, I think it is, right? 15, 115, I can't remember which. Um, here fairly recently. Um, recent commercial that they had, um, part of their campaigns, Uh this one, though particularly seeking to, to prove how green they are, uh, is one that in it had, actually in the commercial itself, uh, CEO Tim Cook. And he is in the commercial playing the part of CEO Tim Cook. Everybody else is actors. Um, as well, the actress Octavia Spencer. Some of you may know that picture just by me mentioning her. she, plays the character of Mother Nature. And the scene of the commercial, maybe many of you have seen it, if you haven't briefly, it shows a bunch of the staff, there's apparently a very high-level executive meeting, and everybody's running around nervously and practicing their lines and trying to make sure everything is just perfect because, you know, the big wig is coming, and of course you end up finding out it's Mother Nature. Octavia Spencer just appears in the room after some um, dramatics. And she shows up, and so Tim Cook greets her, and he says, Mother Nature, how was the weather getting in? And Octavia Spencer responds, the weather was however I wanted it to be. And then thunder rolls in the background. You know, there is one God. There is only one God. And I get that the Apple commercial was meant to be fun and meant to sort of take us to a what-if kind of a scenario in order to go on and prove a point. I get that, and we can be charitable, and we can even laugh at the, the the situation that's proposed. But we also are reminded there are many things that pull at our attention that seek to promise us, serve me, and I will provide for you. Um worship me, do as I bid, and you'll have everything you need. And our hearts are themselves, as the reformers said, idle factories, that we make gods of our own creation. I don't need the help of Apple or any other thing. The one God of the universe says, my glory I will not share with another. To the ransom. Ransomed and delivered people of Israel standing there at the foot of Mount Sinai. The Lord comes and he speaks in fire and thunder and earthquake and trumpet and glory. And what he's doing is he takes these rescued people who he has brought out of slavery and he begins now to form them. As he, for 18 chapters in our Bibles and for those many, many days revealed himself, his name and his glory to all the earth, now he's going to begin revealing his name and his glory in a different way, not through the miraculous so much as it is just through the humble, just through his people, just by forming them as a people for his name. And there at the foot of Mount Sinai, he's going to give the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, if you would, just read with me the opening three verses briefly this morning. It says, And then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This morning, what I'd like to do is finish laying the groundwork that we began a couple of weeks ago in ramping up to our look at the Ten Commandments and the law, because we'll need these for how we go about embracing the Ten Commandments. And to be able to use them and apply them well. And then what I'd like to do this morning is just demonstrate all the groundwork that we're going to lay today or finish laying today. I want to just demonstrate how it's going to work by tackling just that first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. All right, here's what I'd like you to do. Go ahead and grab there in your notes um, that page that talks about um, how to interpret and apply the law, okay? Okay. Flip it over to that side. So I'm going to spend a a, a little while here. I'm just giving you a heads up. This is going to be a little bit instruction heavy, and I apologize up front. You probably would expect nothing else from me. Um, But I think along the way, it will prove more than worth the labors that we will put in. Here's where I want to start. Actually, on that page, it says how to interpret and apply the law. At the bottom, I want you to look at the three parts of the law. I mentioned this last week. Because we're going to have three parts and three uses, and I don't want you to get confused between them, because we have a civil part of the law, and then we're going to see a civil use of the law. And so I want you to see them side by side so you can remember, oh yeah, that's a different kind of a thing. So the three parts of the law, so you can see the different aspects, is that the law, as God gave all his rules to the nation, and even gives his commands and rules for his people today, can be broken down into three big pieces, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. And simply put, the bottom line is the civil and the ceremonial as given to the nation of Israel no longer apply to God's people today. Only the moral law, his eternal righteous standard, and even the way in which it applies might apply slightly differently than the way it did for them. All right, so good enough. You see it. Flip to the other side now. Let's talk about the threefold use of the law, and here's what I want to do this morning because we really need to establish these things if we're going to apply them. I don't just want to quote theologians and say, hey, this is what smart people have done. It's nice to learn from smart people, but what we want to know is, man, is this how the word of God is meant to be read? Is this, is, how, is this how the Lord intended it? Or are we just doing our modern-day version of Pharisaism, and we decide, well, when we read the Bible, we just do this stuff with it, and everybody nods their head and agrees. So, the threefold use of the law. The law is a mirror, a guard, and a lamp. And I'm only going to cover some of these quickly and show you a couple of examples so you can see. First, the law is a mirror in that it reveals and it exposes It upholds the very character of God, and so the law reveals or exposes the character and the nature of God. In addition, when we come and read the law of God, it exposes us. It acts as a mirror showing us the dirt or the shortcomings. It shows us the reality of who we are, not not the fantasy of who we think we are, and there in that second paragraph under number one, it highlights our weakness and exposes our need for a savior. Specifically, it proves our guilt, Romans 3. It says the law speaks so that all men's mouths may be shut. We can put a hand over our mouth because I can't speak to God and say, I'm not guilty. It provokes our conscience, Romans 7. Paul writes there and he says, hey, man, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet. I wouldn't even known that a coveting was a bad thing unless God wrote a law that said, hey, you're not supposed to covet. Really? Is that that thing that I do? That's why I feel like a little queasy inside whenever I act that way or feel like that. Going further, finding us in our sinful state, the law actually increases our sin. In fact, Romans 5 says that part of the design of the law, it was given to, purpose statement, the law was given to increase sin. That's going to be difficult to sleep on tonight, isn't it? God gave his law to increase sin. Uh, But you'll remember the words when I say them from Romans 5. The law was given so the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace super increased. Where sin abounded, grace super abounded. That's what Romans 5 says. The point of all of that is the law comes and convicts us, and it demonstrates to me something that I realize maybe that I was doing that I thought was innocent and maybe unconvicted, untaught. It was excusable, but now I know. And the law of God teaches me. And so it leaves me in a place where I just go, Lord, I am like way, way, way worse than I ever imagined. And so I need you. And so we abandon our own righteousness. We seek a righteousness that only God can give, Romans 3. Or as Galatians 3 says, the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. Martin Luther said it this way, The true function and chief use of the law is to reveal to man, You ready? His sin, his blindness, his misery, his wickedness, his ignorance, his hate, and his contempt of God, death, hell, judgment, and the well-deserved wrath of God. Luther, always mincing words. Just tell us what you believe, Luther. Martin, where are you coming from? Or to say the same thing another way. The mirror doesn't wash your face, but it does drive you to water. That's what the law does. The law doesn't make you holy. It doesn't fix you. But it does expose your need in a way that you say, I need a savior. Second, the law is a guard, a guard. It orders and protects us. This is the civil use of the law, not the civil part. All three parts of the law can be used to help order society in different ways, if they're applicable. But the law also acts as a guard, and specifically for the nation of Israel, it ordered all manner of different things. It imposes restrictions and punishments, and in so doing, it acts as a deterrent. That's what Romans 13 says. Romans 13 says that the civil authority does not bear the sword without reason. God has given the state a power and meant to be used to order and protect. That is what the law is to do. And so the law comes along and it opposes a threat so that even if I don't believe in God or think much about God or even care what God-believing people are like, I ideally live in a society that uses the law to inform its laws that then impose a threat upon me if I break them. That's a purpose. And in so doing, it helps all of us together, regardless of what we think or believe, move together in a way that can be uh, ordered and peaceful and protected. That's what the law does. First Timothy says the law is written for the unrighteous. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have a purpose as well for the righteous. We're going to get more to that. But it also keeps me on my days where I'm not as righteous from maybe wanting to do some more unrighteous things because not only do I have to deal with God, but I also may have to deal with real consequences, fines, imprisonment, arrest, or anything else that might go with it. As a guard, the law also gives us a limited measure of justice. By the way, the word limited is important. We never see full justice in this life, do we? The law was never meant to accomplish full justice. That can be done alone by God and in eternity, and he will be just. This is the civil use of the law. And then third and finally, the law is a lamp. It leads and it guides us. As I mentioned before, it reflects the very character of God, but it also reflects the will of God. So the law, though I may not have to keep a particular law that was given under the Mosaic Covenant, it still reveals something about the nature of God and the will of God. And so in that way, it helps me understand God better so that I can please him. It helps me understand better what sins to avoid and better what what duties to obey. This brings glory to God. It leads to life and deeper intimacy with him and greater satisfaction and joy. Jesus says that in John 14, he who loves me keeps my commands. He who loves me keeps my commandments and my father will reveal himself to him. A greater intimacy, a greater revelation of God if we walk in obedience. That has got to be the greatest motivation of all for obedience because I don't need to earn my salvation. I can't earn my salvation. The Israelites couldn't earn their salvation. They were already a delivered people. But they sought to obey because they knew that God was giving them a way to walk in his blessing. So it's a mirror, it's a guard, and it's a lamp. And then, third and finally, flip back to the other side on how to interpret the law. Because this is going to be one of the things, particularly, we will do as we go through. I want you to notice. A right understanding when we read commands in the law in the Old Testament and even, by principle, the same commands, laws given to us in the New Testament, that those laws should be applied in at least three ways. In fact, in stuff that I was reading this week, there are about six or seven things I could have put here, but we're just going to stick with the three most important. First, the law is internal and external. Second, it's positive and negative. And third, a particular law speaks to an entire category, right? You See that? Internal and external. Hmm. A particular law might only address an external, in other words, a behavior. But if it speaks to a behavior, it still, in so doing, implicitly also speaks to the heart. It speaks to the attitude, the motive, and the will. And vice versa. Any law that speaks to the heart saying, Thou shalt not covet, for example, which is not an action, it's not a behavior. What does coveting look like? Hey, I saw you the other day. You were walking down the street, and then you stopped and you coveted. You sinner. You know, I, I can't see coveting. You can't see coveting. Now, you may do things that are a fruit of coveting, and that's the point. Those things are disallowed to us, right? Whatever actions may come out of that root. So let me give you a few examples. That's the best way, and that's kind of what I'm trying to do already, of uh, what this looks like. Um, Leviticus 19, you don't need to turn there, but in Leviticus 19, the very center of the law given um, to the nation there about God's holiness, here's what God says. He says, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That entire long command that has at least four different parts to it all grows out of one of the Ten Commandments. Which one? Answer, thou shalt not murder. Is what it grows out of. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. And it says you shall not take vengeance. Notice there in the same command in Leviticus 19, which all refer to the command not to kill, we have both an internal and an external. In fact, we have a couple of each. You shall not hate. You shall not bear a grudge. Those are internal. But you shall not take vengeance. That's external. Another one, Proverbs 21, it says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. The nation of Israel was commanded to give sacrifices, right? But it says, If you come with the wrong heart and character, that that is dishonoring to the Lord. And then, of course, the most famous example of this is Matthew 5, and I've already alluded to it, where Jesus takes the command about murder. You have heard it said, Thou shalt not kill. But I tell you, if you say to your brother, Raka, if you hate your brother, and have anger then you have committed murder in your heart. He takes the external and turns it to the internal. Now, every one of these applications that I'm gonna give, we can find internal and external within the 10 Commandments, they're there. We can find internal and external application of every one of the 10 Commandments throughout the rest of the Old Testament. That's what the rest of the law code is doing, It's just applying these 10. We can find application internally and externally in the words and teaching of Jesus, and then we can find it all again in the rest of the New Testament. You get the point? I'm just saying this is a theme of the way the law works in Scripture. Laws apply to internal and external. Second, applies to positive and negative. So where sin is forbidden, the corresponding duty is also inherently applied. So go back to Leviticus 19. I put it here a second time. That's not a typo. But because there, what we have is positive and negative, not internal and external, but positive and negative. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Hey, you can't hate him, but then you can't take vengeance on him, internal, external. You can't hate him, negative, but you also must love him, positive, you see? All of that's just all tied in together. I think the classic example of this in the New Testament is in Ephesians 4.28, and in fact, this is a beautiful picture of the power of the gospel to transform life. Ephesians 4.28 says this, let the thief no longer steal. You would think, okay, well, what's going to happen after that? Um, but instead, he should be, uh, I don't know, um, uh, peaceful. He, he should be uh, happy with what he has, right? That's what you would expect. That's not what the law requires. The law thou shalt not steal requires a positive, rightly understood, fully understood. And Ephesians 4.28 spells it out. But rather, let him labor with his hands so that he might have something to give. Hmm. What's inherent in the law not to steal? It's to work and earn and produce and then also to be generous. Wow, that's a pretty big deal because... I just thought the fact that I didn't shoplift this week meant I've kept that command and I'm doing really well, right? I mean, I can go down the list, didn't kill anybody all day today. But those negative commands also have a positive that say you shall love your neighbor as yourself or you shall be generous rather than to steal. Now, all of a sudden, I'm seeing the mirror aspect of the law. Show me the real character of God and show me that my face is dirty, right? And I need a savior. That's what it's meant to do. Uh, Matthew 6 is another great example. That's where Jesus uh, prays, uh, teaches the disciples to pray. Do you remember uh, the third commandment? The third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, you know what he does? He just takes commandment number three, and he says, pray in this way, our Father who art in heaven. What? Hallowed. You see, that's the positive of the negative of not taking his name in vain. And so it is throughout. We can multiply many, many examples, right? Third, internal, external, positive, negative. Finally, particular and then full category. So a specific prohibition or obligation also can stand for other sins or duties related to it. I'm not saying that every single time one thing appears that we immediately have to assume everything else can just be freighted into that passage. No, I'm just saying in the context of all of scripture, it's super easy to just take a law and say, thou shalt not murder, I'm doing well. But the rest of the law tells us this is what that really means. So as I stand before God and as I take... His word into my heart. I come to him and I say, you know what? The, the commandment not to just do this one thing meets so much else as well. So anything else in the same category, whether those might be of a related kind or it might either be a root of it or a fruit of it. So again, examples, murder. Well, the command thou shalt not murder inherently also prohibits assault, injuring others, domestic violence, abuse of any kind it prohibits whatever might lead to murder right such as fits of anger criminal negligence that could lead to a person's death right we have all kinds of laws about that stuff good or bad but it's in principle a right part reckless driving is criminal why because thou shalt not murder and all other kinds of violence and other things Um, We see this just even in the law code there in the Old Testament in Exodus 23, uh, the command thou shalt not steal is extended. It's one of those great places where it says, if you see your neighbor's animal wandering off, you are to go take the animal and return it to him. Or if you see your neighbor's beast trapped under a load, you are to free that animal. You are to rescue it or fallen in a pit or any of those things, right? Although, actually, you probably don't have Exodus 23 memorized, and I sure wouldn't. But I actually misquoted it for you. Because, actually, every one of those laws I just mentioned, they aren't laws of what you're supposed to do for your neighbor. They're what you're supposed to do for your enemy. If you see your enemy's beast wandering or trapped or fallen in a pit or anything else, this is what you are to do for them. Well, that's part and parcel with thou shalt not murder. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is what the law does throughout. I think my favorite example of this is uh, Matthew 19. Uh, and I, uh, Molly and I got opportunity as I was off here a couple of weeks ago, and we were visiting another church, and uh, the passage was from Matthew 19. This is the rich young ruler. This is such a great example. Remember when he comes to Christ, and he says to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord says, well, you know, it's pretty easy. Just keep the law, man. Which, by the way, immediately a trap, right? Every good Israelite knows the law was never given to save anybody. If you're a good Israelite, Pharisees got off track. This guy's too Pharisaical and Jesus knows it. But he's like, cool, I'm going to give you the answer that you think is the right answer. And then I'm going to see what you do with it. And Jesus is leading him down the path, right? So you keep the law. He says, you know the law, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, and he quotes all of the one another commands of the law of God, of the Ten Commandments, right? Except for one. He leaves one off. And then he waits, and the young man says, well, I've kept all of those. And I imagine Jesus nodding his head and going, yeah, I know you think you've kept all of those. He said, well, you know, you're doing pretty good. All right, hey, it's been great. Oh, yeah, hey, one more thing before I go. Um... Hey, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And you remember how it ends. It says the man went away sad. Why? Because Jesus was hitting him where he knew his heart lie. And where was it? The one command that he did not repeat was, thou shalt not covet. And he left it out there because he said, you know what? Let's just see. You think you kept all the law? Let's bring you back to this one. You are so tied to your stuff. You are so lustful for things, young man, that it has become your God. And so what is he doing there? He is taking that one command, thou shalt not covet, and he is turning it into an entire category, and he's also doing the negative-positive thing at the same time. Go, sell, give it all, and trust me entirely. Well, you get the point. These are three things that as we walk through scripture and we come to the law of God. Now, this might seem overwhelming, and in fact, it can be, but that's okay because anytime I read the Bible, my goal is not necessarily to entire to apply the entire Bible to myself today, but I do want us to see how to put it rightly in context because I think the law is given for our good. I believe, and in fact, I know because God said the nation of Israel believed that the law was given for its good. And God himself said, this is your life. This is how you hold fast to me, walk in life, and provide possession of the land, and reveal me to the world. The law is good. So back to your blank notes, I'm going to let you write in your outline because I don't know how big you want to write or how many notes you want to take, so I didn't even try. For the sake of our time this morning, with the few minutes we have left, we're just going to look at just this first command. Exodus 20, verse 3, now that we've laid a foundation. You shall have no other gods before me. First, I want you to note that the law is good. I could quote the verses for you when God says he gives it, uh, for their good, um, and, and other things like that, but if you'll indulge me to allow me that, um, let's just consider then how we might apply that, and that might be the case. How is, you shall have no other gods, a command, a requirement, that is exceedingly good? Well, answer it's because we know that every one of us serves masters, don't we? We all have gods. I talked about that a couple weeks ago. In fact, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone will be a master either to idols of our own making or to the master, the Lord our God. And here's the thing. Every other idol, every other master, ultimately will lie and steal and enslave. This command is God's provision. You shall have no other gods before me, is to lead us in a path of life. And in fact no other gods is an invitation. To life. Remember what Jesus says. About the thief. John 10. He comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And that's how it is with all other. Masters. Whatever gods of my making. They'll deceive me. They'll take from me. They'll destroy me. They'll dominate me. So. If I make an idol out of people's opinions, how hard will it be to serve that master? Well, acceptance is going to dominate me. It's going to define me in how I speak to people. It's going to leave me fearful constantly and anxious, right? Pick any other idol or any other thing, and in the same way, it'll have that effect. Satan itself is behind so many other idols. I think of uh, C.S. Lewis writing the screw tape letters and in the, the foreword to that book, when C.S. Lewis said, um, hey, this book is going to be all about how the devil thinks, right? It's from the perspective of the devil. It's the devil talking about uh, how to help another demon, like or a big demon helping a little demon ruin a Christian or, or ruin a human. And uh, so everything is upside down. Because that's how the devil thinks. And C.S. Lewis in his foreword, he says, let the the reader be reminded that the devil is a liar. (laughs) Because up front, everything you're going to read from here on needs to be read through that lens. And of course, it's it's a classic for good reason. Every other idol will deceive and kill, steal and destroy and dominate. But this law is good. Because God reminds us, I am the Lord, your God, he just said. I am the one who has made you mine. I have delivered you out so that I could bring you to myself, he said in chapter 19, so that here in this place, we can have this intimacy of relationship. Because I know what's good for you. Because I know where your struggles are better than you do. And I know... What you need. This law is good. Second, you can write this law is gospel. It's 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 good news of a saving relationship. That's what I mean by not just good in general, but good specifically. This law is gospel. Because it's a good news of a saving relationship. You shall have no other gods before me. A More literal translation there of. Before me is before my face. You shall have no other gods in front of my face or in my presence. That's a, that's a helpful little reiteration, by the way, because it, it speaks to the the impunity of us being redeemed by our great Savior, bringing other gods into the mix, right? It speaks of God's good jealousy, if, if I can hazard this example, and you'll understand why I say it that way. It would be like if I come home this afternoon with another woman. And I said, hey, honey, there's another woman, and, and she's just swell. And I really like her, and she's going to be with us from now on. It's going to be me and you and her. And you know what? I think the two of you are really going to get along. I mean, I like her. I'm sure you're going to like her. You get it? You see, that's kind of, kind of when the Lord says, you shall have no other gods in my face. You are in my presence. This is intimate. And our God is a jealous God, is, is a gloriously sweet statement of the good news of his saving grace towards us. And he says, I've made you for myself, and I will, I will not, like, make deals with you on how much time you can, send, you can spend with your mistress I'm just not about that. No, I'm here to rescue you from that for me. And we go, Thank you, Lord God, for rescuing me. Because I hate my mistresses. It's not what I want. I hate my other masters. It's not what I want. Here, the Lord has brought us to Himself, and His very first command is I alone am God. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I thought I might have time this morning to talk about how all the different plagues. Um, just like fully embarrass all the gods of Egypt, (laughs) Uh, but we don't, sorry. Um, But it's super fun. There's different commentators, different studies have been done on it. But I mean, it's it's almost comical to just see how each of the plagues so fits with a particular Egyptian god or goddess or idol or thing that they worshipped. And so now that he's demonstrated no other gods, he says, I've done all this so that you would know. You shall have no other gods before me is the encouragement for a believer to say. You know what my son did to ransom you? He had to die for all of your other idol worship, for all the other gods that you loved. He hung on the cross for that. Those gods aren't gods at all. And that is gospel. Now we live in his presence and he he wants to keep us in him. That's why he gives this command. The law is good. The law is gospel. All right, next, you may want to just jot down the word mirror. Now we're going to use that tool. We're going to talk about the mirror thing. So I said one of the uses of the law is that it demonstrates to us that we fall short. It reflects back to us the many ways that um, we may actually be breaking this command. So let's, let's think about what are some of the ways that we might have other gods, because many things can function as our idols, right, and serve as our gods. Our own little pet deities, and this is the great thing about having idols. I like having idols, right? Lord, please don't strike me down, but he already knows my heart. I like having idols because they're easy. They do what I want. They deliver to me what I want. They make me feel the way I want to feel, and the time I want to feel it, and they don't demand a whole lot in return, and I can pull them out, or turn to them, or invoke them, in the, hope that, in the hopes that they will deliver me at any given time from whatever feeling I might have or discomfort or, or conviction. They might deliver me from God himself. Scary. But they can't. Our gods can be our, our happy places. Now, hear me out, right? It's not that it's wrong for us to go to a happy place. It's just that the happy place should point us back to God and we should worship him alone. That's great. Everything else is meant to point back to him and worship him alone. But let me just give you a laundry list, all right, just for fun. And some of these I'll um, mention some of what scripture says. No other God. So, for example, not food. That can't be our God. Food is meant to be enjoyed as an act of worship to the Lord. But when food becomes my happy place that delivers for me that which I demand then I need to remember scripture saying the food is for stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will destroy them both because I'll have no other gods. What about drink? It can deliver me to a happy place, but Ephesians says don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. What about sex? Adultery is idolatry. It's the worship of another god. Scripture says no immoral or adulterous person will inherit the kingdom of God. So that can't be the place that I go, either physically with my body or in my thinking. How about money? You cannot serve both God and mammon, Scripture says, right? How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, he says. How about possessions? Not just money, not fungible stuff, but just stuff stuff. I like just going out and hanging in my garage and looking at all the cool things right, that are there. Christ says, what profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? He tells the story of the man who stores up all things in barns, but he says, you fool, you think you have great riches preserved for many days to come, and yet tonight your soul will be demanded of you. No other gods, not possessions, not power. 1 Corinthians 1, God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. What about fame or popularity? Ecclesiastes, the wise teacher there, speaks of the wise man through his wisdom who delivered the village from a marching army. And then he goes on to say, but that man was forgotten, even though he was the hero. Well, golly, if he could be forgotten, I think there's a fairly good chance that I will be in very soon. What about intelligence or skill or knowledge? Good things in and of themselves, but they can't be gods because, again, the Lord says, as Paul writes, that God chooses the weak and the foolish things of the world. What about wisdom itself? Just being wise. I want to be wise. Wise is good. Wisdom can't deliver. What about our children? I dig my children. I'm grateful to God for our children. You love your children. Jesus says, I came to bring a sword. I'll turn a father against a daughter, and a mother in law against a son in law. I tell you the truth that a man's enemies will be the members of his own household, Christ says, because he will not have any other gods before him, right? What about religion itself? Well, the Colossians uh, like to use these phrases of do not touch, do not handle. And he says that is not going to deliver you to life, all your religious rules. What about good things like health and exercise and personal discipline? Yeah, Timothy, as Paul writes to him, is encouraged. Physical training is of some value, but godliness holds value for all things. Paul also writes, I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that I myself on that day will not be disqualified after I have preached to others. He says, That's the discipline I need. It's spiritual. Diet and nutrition. I don't know. Do you think we're a people in America that can sometimes make gods out of our diet? Not us. What about the God of serving? Just being a servant or giving or sacrifice. All good things, all commanded things. But ultimately, Jesus will say, go and sell all you have. Okay, great. You want to see how well that works? Good. Then just give everything and then follow me. Where's your God? He says to the rich young ruler. What about sensuality or comfort? Creature comforts. Just making the temperature right and the food and the wine good. And that's great, man. We just need to worship God with those things. But when those become the thing, Paul writes in Colossians of a people that he says their God is their belly. And, and what they live for is what keeps them comfortable. And we can go on. We could talk about uh, making a God out of nature. We could talk about making a God out of politics and government and a politician. That doesn't happen. We can talk about making a God out of love. Yeah, God is love, but love ain't God. The one who said, I came to bring not peace, but a sword. We can make a God out of our character, out of, out of our integrity, the things that we do well. Look at all the rules that I keep. We can make a God out of our personal peace. And on it goes, you get the point. I haven't even begun to scratch the surface, but we all know full well what it means. These are some of the ways that we fall short. Now, thankfully, you guys have never struggled with any of those things, but I do a lot so when I read the law and I see him say, I will have no other gods, Frank, I'm like, I have a lot of gods, Lord. I just have a lot of idols. I have loved other things, my peace and my comfort and my fame, and I love to hear my name spoken well, and just on and on. But Lord, this is for my good, isn't it? Because all those gods are miserable masters. So you get the point. This one single short command, I don't know how many Words is it in your translation? Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. She'll have no other gods before me. Man, it uh, it's carrying a lot of freight in the trailer, isn't it? <laughs> that it's pulling along behind it. Great, we're just getting going. Let's keep going on the mirror, positive and negative. Okay, so what we have here. Um, is a statement of what not to do. So let's talk a little bit about what is prohibited. I've mentioned all these other things that we can make idols out of, but there's another way to think about prohibitions, right? So if we thought of what are other ways we could transgress? We could have other gods. Uh, well, sorcery would count, right? Looking to some sort of magic or incantation or witchcraft, right? Um that would be seeking something else to take the place of God, superstition. Now, now, if, if like you won the last three basketball games because you rolled up your socks just a certain way, and for the fourth game, you want to roll them that way too, great. But at the end of the day, those things have to be put all in their place, right? And, and those little things are just reminders to show us, where is my hope? What do I want? And how am I seeking it? I know that was a silly example, but for some, it's not. Astrology would be another God replacement. Included in this category, and of course the Reformers brought this out often, would be prayer to the saints, right? You can't pray to anybody else. There's only one God. You can't pray to Mary. You you, you, you could be Buddhist or Hindu. Do I have it? Shinto. One of those. And pray to your ancestors, all of those would be a transgression of the first law, right? Cults, other religions, atheism, duh, falls in this category. All of those. Those are things about what is prohibited. We're going to come back to the positive in just a minute, so I'll leave that there. Also, under the mirror, let's talk about the larger category, right? Remember I said you have positive and negative, and then you have specific and larger category. Let's talk about larger Category. What's in view here? Well, if you and I are not to have any other gods before him, what that also includes is we can't even have a mutated or a perverted view of who the right God is. So heresy would be included in here. False teaching about the very nature of God himself. And you can decide the degree to which at what point it you know crosses the line or something, but that's clearly within the category. How about just viewing him as less than God? We never do that, do we? I don't know. Do we use God for our own ends? Do we manipulate sometimes? And usually in unthinking ways. Um, yeah, man, I'll just, I'll just be honest. I am a more spiritual uh, Christian man on weeks that I preach, typically, than on weeks that I don't. Eh, maybe I didn't say that right. I'm tempted. How's that? To be a more spiritual man. Why? Because I don't want to look like an idiot. That's the fleshly part of me. The spiritual part of me is because I want God to do eternal things. And I want to get to be a part of it. And I don't want to miss out on that. And if I know on Sunday I got to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. I'll tell you what, all week long it helps me go, you know what, Lord? I think it's a little easier to say no to this it's a little easy as, easier as you prick my conscience to say yes to, to you then it might be on a week when I'm not going to stand up and preach. I am that depraved. I think God allowed me to be a pastor just so I wouldn't totally wreck my Christian faith because I wouldn't have made it any other way. Uh, you know, the fear is used by God. But what's behind that? What's the heart of that? Manipulation. Now, All I can do is confess it and say, no, I do want you to actually use me. I don't want to manipulate. I want you to be glorified. Right? Sorry to be so personal, but thanks for the therapy. It was a good session today. (laughs) Any other view of God that's less than him as God? He's not one we manipulate. (laughs) He's one we joyously, thankfully serve. And every Sunday morning I stand up and I still get to say, Lord, I have no reason why you should use me today. But If you are willing, I am so ready. Praise God that he is willing. Insufficient zeal for God would go in this category as well. Because what immediately follows after a right view of God comes a right response to God from the heart, right? And if we have a problem with one, inevitably we're going to have a problem with the other. Chicken or egg in your particular situation, any view of God that's less. That's part of the larger category. Okay, so we're filing all of that under the mirror thing. The first use of the law is as a mirror. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. There's a lot of different ways I can learn from that. By the way, if you read the catechisms and the, um, the, the confessions, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Catechism, if you read the... Uh, the ancient creeds of the church like one of the things if you're going to teach your kids if you're going to indoctrinate your kids and and right brothers and sisters of Christ we must indoctrinate our kids right we are not ashamed of that charge yes we indoctrinate where's where are the mallets thank you very much um, so we, we absolutely indoctrinate our kids right if we're going to indoctrinate our kids one of the things you indoctrinate them in are some of the basics like the 10 commandments because they really do apply to all of life here's my point if you go to those catechisms and confessions, I think the Westminster Larger Catechism has, like, under the, under the one command, there are about four or five questions for the, for the first commandment. And one of the questions is, what are the duties required of the first commandment? And it gives a couple dozen And then the next question is, what are the prohibitions required by the first command? And there are two or three dozen prohibitions, right? It's a mirror. The law is a guard. Second, the law is a guard. Here, the guard part of the use of the law, it's the civil use. So question, how are we to take thou shall have no other gods before me and apply that in American civil life today, I, I had to think about this for a while because I thought um, I don't think it does because we're not a theocracy. We, we can't command everybody to not have other gods. We could try, but number one, we're not going to get that law passed. But you know what? Our Judeo-Christian ethic founding fathers actually found a way, and they instituted it in the Constitution and the bill of rights and all of that it's the it's called the first freedom some of you already know what i'm talking about and it's called the first freedom because it's the most important the freedom of religion the freedom of religion is an application it's a guard application from the law of the command you shall have no other gods before me and what the freedom of the, of religion allows is that every man must and can obey and submit to his own conscience before God as he understands him. That is a protection and a provision for the sake of the Christian faith. Right, we understood, right? And it's called the first freedom for a while. Now, here's where you guys want me to just go off and vent about freedom of religion, and I should, but time won't allow, and that's not my main point. The point here is notice how it's a guard, because it protects the citizens from the tyranny of the state the state may not take the place of god can i get an amen Amen. yeah right that's the second use and there may be others in fact if you come up with some others i'd be interested shoot me an email or tell me because uh that was the biggie that i came up with third it's a lamp Here is where the law is a guide and it's a lead. It's not just a guide to tell us here's the boundaries. Hey, outside of the boundaries, these are things God doesn't like. Within the boundaries, here's the things that God does like. I I purposely, and I thought about that, I'm like, I said the lamp is a lead and a guide, but those are the same thing. No, they're not. The guide is to tell us where we can and can't go, should and shouldn't go, but the lead is actually to create in us a thirst and a desire and a motivation to do it. And the law of God has that power, rightly used by the Spirit of God in a submissive heart. At least I hope that that's a little bit of what you're experiencing this morning, because all we're doing today is thou shalt have no other gods. But I hope you have a little bit more taste for for that obedience, a little bit more appetite for that obedience, because that's all we're doing this morning. The reformers, in trying to answer the question, how do we obey? Thou shalt have no other gods. How do we live to please him? They come up with four things. I'll give these to you because I think they're very well done. There's not a verse I have for this, but they are a very good list. They said, when it comes to God, there are no others whom you shall adore, trust, invoke, and thanks. Thank. There are four things when it comes to having no other gods. There is no one else or other thing that you shall adore, trust, invoke, or thank. And so here's where I'm going to just leave you with a few thoughts under each of these as you go forward this week. How are you going to let the law be a lamp for you and lead you to to please God? Do you want that? Well, what will you adore this week? What will you delight in? What will you give fear and reverence to? If you want a simple takeaway, it might be this. Today before you go to bed, or I don't know, you can pick tomorrow, Monday. Between your waking and sleeping on Monday, how are you going to delight in God? And, and, and maybe this is a week for uh, a new discipline or, or a new effort. Or maybe it's just starting the morning with that question. I don't know. How will you delight in God? Because He loves you. Because He's jealous for you. He says, I, "I refuse to for you to have a mistress." I don't. Not only do I not want that for me, but that's easy for me. I can do that to your mistress, but I don't want it for you. Because I love you. So come and delight in me. See, this negative command has also the positive responsibility to deepen in our love for one another. Can I give a can I give a parallel that's such a strong biblical parallel? It's it's the divorce and marriage parallel. That we're not supposed to divorce, right? And I know divorces happen. I know many in this congregation, my own family. But here's the point, the command to not divorce rightly understood is also a duty to delight in our spouse, right? And so in the same way with the Lord himself, the command not to cheat on him with other gods is also a duty to delight in him. First adore; you get it. Second, trust. What are you relying on? Um, What are you relying on? I think there's a lot of ways we we rely on a lot of things and, and they're okay. There's a sense in which I rely on my car. It's not my idol. I just kind of don't have a choice. I could have walked here this morning, um, but I kind of relied on my car. Uh, But there are other things that I rely on that really are, I think, more clearly hard issues. Um, For example, to feel more confident because I know I had a good night's sleep, or to feel less confident and willing to trust God because I didn't. Well, there might be things that it's appropriate to say no to if you haven't had a good night's sleep. But that reminder for me is one to just say, you know what, I, I pretty much calculate because that's I'm that kind of a guy. I calculate what my resources are, and then I make my commitments in light of it. And heaven forbid that God would ask me to do more than what I think I could do. That's making an idol. What do I trust? Okay, Lord, I do not have the grace and the strength to do that. But it is so <laughs> clear that you're telling me to do that. So I'm going to rely on you. I'm not going to have any other gods, Lord. That's what I want. Help me. Third, invoke. Invoke. I know invoke sounds very like cultic. Invoke your gods. But no, that's a good broad term. Whom do we ask? Whom do we request of? Whom do we honor? These are invoking things. Who comes to mind? Um, Who do we give credit to? I think that's a good one. Right? Every, every, uh, every good Christian athlete has figured out after they win the big game and they stick a mic in their face that they have to say, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? And, and I don't mean that in a silly way. My hope and prayer is that's really a heart thing. But, but there's a good example of, well, that's kind of how it should be done. Lord willing, that it might be a true heart thing. But who do, to whom do we give credit for all manner of things? And then finally, who do we thank? That's related. But. Um, I think that's why we bow our heads at the beginning of a meal. I think it's why we linger over a sunset, or or we should and could. And those are small things, and there's many more that that are big. Health and strength, grace and life, family and friends, and so many, many more. All of them point us back to him because he's the one we thank, because we have no other gods before him. How will you do? those things this week i'll leave you with those as a thought finally let me close with a few words from city light there are group writing contemporary hymns none above him none before him all of time in his hands for his throne it shall remain and ever stand all the power all the glory i will trust in his name for my god is the ancient of days If you want to look up City of Light, Ancient of Days, that's the song. Good encouragement. Stand with me. Let's um, close together in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we happily and freely admit to you that we fall short. Your law does its work. We see our need. Thank you for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sin is increased this morning. Oh, but grace is super increased. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died for all of that. Thank you, Lord, that you order a people and you give us wisdom for our relationships and for our society. And thank you. You've taught us how to please you, how to delight in you. You've beckoned us to come to your side and delight in you. We thank you for that. Gracious Father, praise you for your word. And might you do your work and bring it to our minds often this week.